news this evening is speculation concerning the real facts behind the Department of Health announcement about a radioactive spill supposed to have occurred yesterday at the state nuclear plant. I know what you're thinking. Mine's bigger than yours, right? It's not fair. Throw it away. All right? All right! Tons of popcorn there. Yeah. And all you gotta do is go climb a tree to go eat it. <laughs> it was a night like any other night. Then something happened. Oh, good lord. It's. It's unbelievable. It's. It's horrible. Welcome to the Really Awful Movies Podcast, a celebration of low-budget cinema. The sleep of reason gives birth to monsters. Hi, my name's Chris, and along with Jeff, we're bringing you the very best and worst of horror, sci-fi, post-apocalyptic wasteland, kung fu, and women in prison movies from the 1960s to today. Check us out at reallyawfulmovies.com, part of the Crypt TV family. Welcome to a special episode of the Really Awful Movies Podcast, where Chris chats with Kevin Chabot, a PhD candidate and teaching assistant at the University of Toronto's Cinema Studies Institute. His research interests include paranormal and found footage horror films and how they engage with the changing technological media landscape. This episode, a wide-ranging discussion about horror films as well as technology's influence on them, was recorded at the University of Toronto's Woodsworth College Student Lounge. Enjoy. I guess I'll start with, uh, what was the first horror film you ever saw? Ooh. What Leviathan it's... Under the Bed, like, <laughs> or whatever spurred your interest in this? Well, uh, as a kid, we used to rent horror films from, you know, Blockbuster, the dinosaur of video rental stores. Um, so, like, I remember watching one of the sequels to Halloween really early on. I think it was Halloween 5 with the girl in the clown costume. I remember watching like Leprechaun and sequels to Friday the 13th and just that, that slew of like 90s slasher kind of stuff that I saw in the 90s. Because I had an older brother and my parents, I don't know, didn't seem to care very much. So, oh, Bordello of Blood, that's another one that's yeah, okay, yeah. Um, but just kind of like schlocky things like that in my childhood. And so I think I, I don't know if I could pinpoint my starting point and in interests in horror films. Um, I do remember taking a kind of academic interest after seeing The Exorcist re-release in theaters when I was 12. Because in that one, like, really stuck with me and traumatized me to some extent. And so I started thinking more about pursuing that and thinking about um, why that affected me so much. And then so... So in university, when I started taking film, I wanted to take a horror film course to learn like what had been written about it and what you know what people have said about the genre. Um, and they didn't offer it until like my third year, so it was always just like every year waiting for that elective to be offered. Um, and that was great, and that really sort of uh, gave vocabulary to what I had been interested in about like things like theology and the unknowable and fear of 
fear of the unknowable and the sublime and all of that kind of thing. So, so did a religious upbringing uh, inform your reaction to The Exorcist, or? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I was brought up quite in a secular household. We did the token Catholic things, like baptism and whatnot, but that's... I, I was made to be afraid that I was not more of a believer. <laughs> it did make me pray for a while. I mean, it just as the performance of, like, I better cross my T's and dot my I's. Yeah, yeah, um, so to speak, yeah. So I did, like, I did have my phase of Catholic fear and guilt, though. I think I'm over it <laughs> right now. Yeah, it's yeah. weird how many people, like it's a common experience of people to, I guess, go back in time through uh, sort of misbegotten, unheralded, kind of crappy sequels. Because we all did that, I think, with Friday the 13th. So yeah. getting introduced to it through like the cool, iconic, let's see, cover of four or five yeah. and those, and then going back and then wondering what the hell is up with this mother killer kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's the great thing about those 80s slashers is that they're already kind of parodies of themselves mm. and they're not at all about an original horror experience. It's about, you know, the extravagance of the kill and the ingenuity of the kill and the violence, right? Um, and the kind of shock factor and creativity of the kill. And so um, I think, you know, that might be why my parents didn't give didn't care so much because it's already so absurd and humorous you know it's oh, kind yeah. of like leprechaun especially i mean that that film is just purely like look at the hilarious ways talk about oh um, the bomb death made it into our book yeah well. yeah yeah and the the one i remember i remember it as being like a lawnmower or something or like a like a rotating fan and i forget what that actually is hmm. but uh the leprechaun disguises himself as like a topless girl and then the dude just like uh, goes into it and it's a like a fan that mm. chops him up. So, I mean, stuff like that, that's just absurd. And then, you know, as adults, you can kind of put aside as being not serious, not relevant. Therefore, it's passable, right? So did you not do an undergrad in film or you, just, you were just waiting for, you know, you were doing something else and this, this magic elective uh, finally <laughs> came your way and then you... No, I was doing my undergrad in film. You had to combine it with communication studies. So it was like media studies plus film studies, basically. Um, so I was doing that from first year. I think I was just waiting for an opportunity because I was interested in film more broadly, but I was already thinking about specializing or going towards studying horror film in particular. Yeah, so I started out in film studies and just stayed with it. A friend of mine uh, directed a documentary called Why Horror. I don't know if you ever got yeah. a chance to see that. I didn't see it, but... Okay, I, I highly I recommend it. Uh, yeah. So Why Horror for you in, as uh, in postdoctoral work, or postgraduate work, sorry. Not yeah. yet postdoctoral work. Not yet postdoc. <laughs> Knock on wood, yeah. Um, I think there are many ways to answer that question. Uh, it's, it's routinely discussed in terms of pleasure, right? Of like, why would people pay to go see something that presumably is unpleasurable, which is like the feeling of horror. And it's been, you know, talked about in terms of, well, you, there's a cathartic experience, a purging of emotion, there's the satisfaction that the evil thing is contained and mastered and dealt <laughs> with, there's a psychoanalytic kind of explanation of your, your going over past trauma and then by experiencing the traumatic event you then can master it and whatnot. So there's all these sort of theories about why we put up with displeasure in terms of horror. So I'm interested in that. 
I think another explanation is the spectacle that what we were just discussing, the spectacle of violence. I mean, just as in a musical or a comedy, horror has these little set pieces that are principally organized around the display of what a body being tortured or what, what have you, right? So, so it's like an aria in an opera, and it's just a way to showcase uh, an amazing kill through in the confines of some kind of structure? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and there's nothing wrong with saying that uh, there is visual pleasure in seeing the body do crazy things, right? Or having crazy things happen to the body. Um, there is, you know, like Linda Williams describes horror as a body genre along with like pornography and the melodrama that it's principally about affect and the body and seeing the body in these extreme scenarios, right? And like pornography, there's a kind of desire to demystify the body, to sort of open it up and get like down and dirty with the intricacies of the body. Well, I so, guess in the, the best exemplar is like maybe the fly or some sort of, or, or yeah. maybe Videodrome or something, but yeah. uh, how does that really apply to the, the kind of uh, carnage first, uh, body count first kind of films? Is that similar or is it not as internal a, a kind of... Hmm. Visceral horror. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the flying videodrome are like explicitly body horror films where the danger is yourself, your own corporeality that's sort of working against you, and, and it's unstoppable. So unlike something like a serial killer, I mean, you can't really slow down your own inevitable degeneration, which is what those films are really tapping into. Um, how does that differ from the piling up of, of the body count in the slasher film? Again, I will posit that slasher films from the late 70s through the 80s are mostly campy. And there are obviously ones that take themselves seriously, but on the whole, I mean, they become very, very self-aware very quickly. Like I recently watched a slew of the Friday the 13th in order, and by that third film, I mean, now you're in 3D and now you're just in gimmicks, right? Um, although there's an argument to be made about even from the first film, it's not really... I mean, that it's already a rip-off of Halloween and a self-acknowledged kind of rip-off of Halloween. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, it's not meant to be truly horrifying, I suppose, is my is my response. So would, would Halloween be a sort of a demarcation point there? Yeah. Yeah. What, what did you make of the killer being uh, unstoppable in the end? Do you think that detracted from it, or do you think it added to it, or what? What kind of impact did that have? That sort of did that jumpstart everything else? Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a convention that was probably initiated with Halloween. Though, of course, there's earlier examples. Um, the Canadian film, right? Black Christmas, did a similar thing. The killer isn't unstoppable, but still isn't defeated. Um, yeah, and Halloween there is interesting because there's suggestions that he might be a supernatural killer. I mean, that well, he appears shape, and disappears right? Yeah. randomly, right? Um, but I think we're meant to believe that unlike Jason, he is a material human being. Um, uh, just north of here, there's uh, the Black Christmas house. Mm -hmm, and I went there mm -hmm. on my bike and I took a, a photo of it. And it's just really cool that all yeah. that kind of, uh, um, I guess, attack shelter uh, low-end kind of movie making took place right around here right yeah. in our backyard which is just super awesome yeah and on like on campus too by University College this is a scene shot um, so I guess I'm hesitant to say you know if Halloween is an original slasher film because hmm. you hear that all the time and I you know you could credit it with starting perhaps 
the the ubiquity of slasher films that flooded the market afterwards because it was a, a successful independent film that made a ton of money on a low budget so then people capitalized on this but that doesn't mean that it's the first film to sort of use that formula of bevy of teenagers being taken out one by one by a sort of superhuman semi-human monster again texas chainsaw did that in 74 so i think we want to be careful when we talk about the beginnings of things because they're often more murky and harder to define true but certainly a significant one well you can say that it had its apex and it really faded it, it burnt out yeah and so to what can you attribute because it's a great segue to my next question here the long-lasting appeal of found footage because when I think found footage, like there's a terrific film with Danny Bonaducci from the Partridge Family. It's called <laughs> America's Deadliest Home Video. And oh, it's cool. about It's about this filmmaker who gets kidnapped in order to uh, chronicle the exploits of this criminal duo. Yeah. And so you actually have a means of inserting the found footage in a really organic, meaningful way, as opposed to people filming themselves and their own potential demise, which I always thought was a bit of a... Or even, I don't know if you've seen Cannibal Holocaust, mm -hmm. with that kind of, where they find the footage. So that, that's been around for a long time now as a device, and I'm probably missing some that maybe might have predated Cannibal Holocaust, and even, but who knows if I don't know about it. But, so yeah, why, is it, why does it keep kicking? Well, especially now, uh, when like Cannibal Holocaust is a documentary film crew, it's also within a fictional frame, right? Like the footage is found by characters within the the diegesis but i think and you know blair witch is similar um man bikes dog is similar that they're documentary film crews that sort of explains why they have all this equipment why they've got sound why they've got like 16 millimeter you know because yeah. it, it, re it requires some sort of professional skill or knowledge whereas now everyone has a camera on on their person all the time so i think as a narrative conceit it's way more believable now that you would be recording something you know, out of the ordinary, um, and you would just happen to have a camera, right? I mean, so the, you, yeah. you get rid of that whole problem of like, where is this footage coming from? It's, oh, it's a cell phone video. Yeah, yeah, right? true. I was thinking also uh, Quarantine, this awful, awful movie with, uh, with um, I guess a news crew. So they're doing electronic news gathering. It's yeah. uh, the, the woman from Dexter, the mm -hmm. sister, pretty bad. But, Carpenter, yeah. something yeah. Carpenter. Jennifer yeah. Carpenter, I believe, yeah. yes. Which I guess inevitably brings us to Blair Witch. What were your thoughts on that and how did it put this conceit on the map when others, other films didn't, I guess, to the same extent? Yeah, um, it was marketed super well and it used something that the other films didn't have, which is the internet and kind of viral marketing campaigns. I mean, they put up like missing people posters, right? <laughs> and they really tried hard to trick you into thinking that the footage is real. Um, they produced a, a documentary, right, on the Blair Witch, which is itself a fiction. <laughs> but um, apparently, even according to um, the actors, they thought that the Blair Witch was real, um, and we're, but the film would be fake, but they thought that the legend was real. But no, the whole thing was a construction. So they went through great pains to sort of trick the audience by producing this documentary that aired before the premiere of the film, um, which is then referenced in the film itself as like, I saw a documentary on the Blair Witch. Yeah. Um, they've had like, on their website, they had missing persons reports, they had maps, they had like, all kinds of evidence on the website, such that 
the Blair Witch film becomes one piece of the broader like, picture of the mystery, right? Um, and so that film was marketed super well. Uh, it got people talking. The premiere at Sundance got everyone talking. And it did trick people. Like, it was successful in tricking people who still somehow think that that film was real. People still apparently steal, like, the Burkittsville sign and all that. Um, and then I guess this kind of uh, stunt, yeah, uh, like William Castle-esque kind of mm-hmm. promo uh, sort of has wound up in the likes of Slender Man and that kind of thing mm-hmm. as well, which I've yet to see, but I feel like I should. Yeah, hmm. the Marble Hornets whole, like, web series. I did see that one, yeah. Yeah, yeah, But yeah. not the other, yeah. Yeah, which is great. Again, a kind of a fictitious construction that's trying to trick you or convince you that this is genuine. And I think it's it's rare now for found footage films to do that because now it's sort of like, it's acknowledged to be a style. This is a kind of, it's an aesthetic of authenticity rather than being authentic footage itself. Like again, Cloverfield, no one's believing that this is like genuine footage of this monster. It's just like, should this attack happen, what would it, what would it look like, right? I mean, part of the draw is that we see incredible, supernatural, impossible things presented to us in a way, um, like as, as documental, documentary realism, right? So sort of like supernatural elements, what would they look like if they were real, basically? It's like, this is what they would look like. But again, we as audience members sort of acknowledge that this is a style rather than an actual documentary film. Um, or actual documentary evidence and don't we're not tricked by it in that sense we don't leave the theater being like what happened to New York Um, but something like Marble Hornets is different because it's very much again trying to convince you somewhat at least in the initial premise that this that this phenomenon is real Um, but yeah Blair Witch was successful because of its sort of marketing campaign and its ingenious use of the internet. Again, 99, like, yeah, films had websites and stuff, but I think it's hard for us to think about virality and viral marketing in, in, in like the nascent in, internet days. Um, so I would, I would ascribe a lot of credit to their marketing team. And, and previous to uh, this uh, recording, here we were chatting about how I guess new technology dovetails with your initial uh, thesis, which was to be related to found footage, and then it morphed into, I guess, uh, technology. So mm-hmm. can you speak to what influenced, I guess, the the former, and then how it transferred into the latter? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, as a film studies person, um, I'm very much interested in cinematic specificity and film theory that has been bound up in theorizing what is particular about the moving image and the celluloid moving image. Um, So classical film theories that always ask this question of what is cinema and all of that, I'm I'm really interested in that whole line of arguments, which has come back at the moment of sort of digital ubiquity. Like once digital technology technology has come about and digital projection and digital production, the question of is this cinema at all has returned and then what made cinema unique well, how is it not or how is it and what are the two competing well because if people camps. define cinema by photographic film that is projected at 24 frames a second and if that's important to you as this is what 
cinema is as an art form. It's a material moving image that has a kind of connection to reality in a way that the digital doesn't. So that's the other thing about the kind of analog versus digital in terms of found footage. Um, there's a sense in which something like Cannibal Holocaust or Blair Witch, because it's analog film, has more of a privileged access to reality. You know, and the theory of indexicality, right, is that because light is reacting photochemically on the film, it's, it is actually picking up a, a trace of the real itself. Wow. Um, and because the digital, again, the argument would say, has no connection to reality, can be completely manipulated and completely constructed out of whole cloth. It doesn't have a referent to the real necessarily. So there's a suspicion of digital as being not actually true <laughs> because it's always cut off from reality. And of course, I mean, photographic film has always been able to be manipulated. There's always been forgeries. Well, if there's any medium that's been taken into account for being manipulative, it would be photographs that say people from in the Ozarks or people yeah. posing like uh, supposed hillbillies or lower class people mm -hmm. who are made to, you know, reproduce whatever circumstances that are bad that they're living through and for the and for the camera, you know, the photographer's gaze. So yeah. I had no idea there was, this was sort of a formalist, like, discussion. It's pretty oh, yeah. weird to hear about. It's almost yeah. like Bob Dylan going electric or something. <laughs> it's like, is that you really know, folk music? It's or? a similar debate. And I've had discussions with people who I'm not so musically inclined. But it's a similar debate about um, people who, who value the vinyl record versus the MP3. It's a bit different, obviously, there are different technologies, but, but it, there's, a, there's an inherent sense of photographic material film for purists as being more real, more truthful, more authentic, because it's got this tie to external reality. Um, and then, of course, the reverse side, a suspicion of digital as being wholly untethered from the real, right? And this matters in terms of found footage to, to like, what does the spectator bring in terms of their, their credulity of the image? Is because something is a photograph, are you more likely to believe that that is actual evidence rather than a digital recording that could be manipulated, right? And I think found footage plays with this all the time. Um, but again, uh, there was this sort of moment in film theory and film studies, which I think we're kind of past now, about the death of cinema. I mean, does the rise of digital mean that cinema as, as an, art form, an art form is now dead? And again, cinema is more than just the film strip. It's like... Well, if anything, it decays at a much lesser rate. So yeah. wouldn't it be more alive now than ever? Because it, it's just bits that can't degrade or like degrade to a lesser extent? Uh, uh, who knows? Yeah, I mean, there, that's another interesting question about um, preservation. Archivists and actual archival people will say that digital lasts um, much less and has a, has, a small, has a smaller shelf life because as technologies grow, then current technologies will be incompatible with the future technologies will be unable to play them. Hmm. So actual film that preserved properly will last longer in that sense. Because it's analog, because it's not dependent on code. Oh, I guess so. Like, if you just get a thing to project it and light, that's all you need, right? Um, but so, I mean, I'm interested in these kinds of ideas of what makes photographic film um, 
from you know the late 1800s until say I don't know the 1970s to be arbitrary about it or even the 80s. What makes this as a medium? Why do people perceive this medium to be more real than like a painting? Hmm. And it. it and it is because of this sort of like, well, that's just an image of the world, isn't it? That's just a photograph. Um, and again, that kind of sense of this is documentary evidence because it's a photograph is like implicit in all of that, right? Huh. Well, since, since we're like steps away from, well, the McLuhan Center and everything, yeah. we, we can talk about, I guess, uh, new media and how that informs, uh, well, horror specifically. And mm -hmm. I was going to ask, I mean, with the exception of the aforementioned Cronenberg films, uh, most horrors that involve technology are overwhelmingly awful. Like I'm thinking of I murders, uh, like lowercase I. Uh, okay. There's unfriended, there's yeah. cam to cam, there's death tube, panic button is another one where it's a social media based thing where a bunch of reality show contestants get lured into a locale where they're subsequently killed. So like what, uh, how, why is it that people can't envision uh, uh, I guess a technological advancement that has any sort of staying power. Like all this stuff seems almost immediately dated. And there's, there's I don't know yeah. if there's a Craigslist killer movie out there based on the true. I'm sure there is. I mean, yeah, it's an interesting question about why, why social media films. I mean, like, that was supposed to be the big thing. Because there's always the next big thing in horror. So. Yeah, and again, I would say there's there's multiple reasons for it. Uh, one being uh, from an industrial standpoint, low production value and that's low investment. I mean, you can put out Unfriended and just have a like an actual Skype connection over 90 minutes and then that's your film and it makes a killing at the box office, right? Um, I actually don't know how much it costs, but I'm sure it's more complicated than that. Oh, there's pound horror as well, like pound sign. Yeah. Oh, which I never saw, but apparently it was terrible. There's tons of them and I, I haven't seen many of them. Um, but if horror has historically been about anxieties, about whatever the thing is, then new technologies would seem perfectly natural, a subject for horror film. Again, a sense of like haunted technologies has pervaded um, the genre, like TV and Poltergeist, for example. Or TV like, and demons, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Or you know, the cinema screen and demons, right? Yeah. Like this technology can hypnotize you, right? That you are a victim of the evil force that lies behind the image. You can say the same with a telephone and when a stranger calls of who's on the other line. And all these technologies that are about a facing spatial distance and then, you know, bringing you closer physically with, well not physically, but closer with a stranger is, is, a, is a kind of, is a worry stretching back from the telegraph to like the internet now. And this is Jeffrey Sconce's argument from his book, Haunted Media, which is great. Um, so there's these anxieties about, oh, I'm bringing in the unknown closer to my domestic space and then with the internet to my like, bedroom, for example. Huh. Say the parental fear of like, my kids on this chat room and who the, they, they might be chatting to who they think is like a little kid, but it's like a 40 year old man who's sinister in some way, right? There's this fear of like the unknown in this sense. Um, and I think we don't know what the implications of social media are. Like what you put out there, what's going to come back to haunt you in the future? Like there's all these fears about, um, you know, people being flagged for, for tweeting things and being, and facing um, 
persecution in some sense because of what they've said that is traceable and you know that being held against them so there is a kind of cultural anxiety about what social media is what it does are you being tracked is facebook actually not about our friendship but it's about identifying who i am and sort of like tracking my movements and uh, i'm a target for advertisers or even more nefarious i'm a target for government control and surveillance right and what's anxiety producing is that some of that is true <laughs> we know that, that we know that that's true that you know we are our digital footprint is traced and that is used to identify us and get information about us and so there are very real anxieties and fears pertaining to our online lives um, so I would say yeah the horror films are a way to sort of explore these fears and tensions right what if your telephone is haunted what if there is a ghost in your computer <laughs> today is the anniversary of uh, Alexander Graham Bell getting his mm. patent for the telephone. Mm -hmm. And yeah, just around the corner, I guess at one of the subway stations, I think it was a museum, they filmed Murder by Phone, mm. which I thought would be an interesting conceit to revisit, uh, considering that we're not tethered to a phone in the way that we were in the, in the past. So I don't know of any exploding phones, because like Samsung uh, oh, had yeah. an issue with that, and I <clears> thought, oh, that would be excellent. And now budding filmmakers can just steal this idea, but like a killer, a killer phone would be fantastic. Yeah, well, there's that one missed call Right, which is a remake of a Japanese film that, again, it's not, it's like a haunted situation where the phone sort of like, it's like a curse or something like this. So, um, again, that we, that while there might not be a tether on the phone, we are tethered to our phones, right? It's like the phone yeah. is never separate from you. And so you're always accessible and perhaps you're always susceptible to some sort of compromise. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's a worry that's being tapped into. So you mentioned, well, technology in the bedroom there, so that mm. uh, no finer example of that than maybe paranormal activity where people are documenting weird goings-on of the supernatural yeah. nature, uh, if that's not redundant. So yeah. you, you said that was one of your interests uh, in your thesis to mm -hmm. tap in to explore that kind of realm. So what interests you about the paranormal? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of technology, it's really fascinating how the paranormal, again, the supernatural, that which is beyond nature, there is always a kind of drive to capture it using some form of material technology. Whether it's a spirit photography of the 19th century that's aiming to capture the physical presence of ghosts, um, either you know, in space or on the film strip itself that ghosts can react chemically to film again a kind of other meme specific thing of why why like photographic film specifically some spiritualists would say well it's because ghosts are you know have a different energy and they're you know they're they're magnetic in some way or they 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 don't we can't see them because our our vision is corporeal but a mechanical vision a mechanical sight can materialize them so there's always a kind of drive to use um, tools outside of ourselves to capture definitive proof of the supernatural. And so again, it's like, well, while one person's vision might be, you might be deceived, right? Your mind can play tricks on you. There's this sense of you can't deceive the machine, 
it's mechanical, it's objective, therefore if there's a ghost in that image, uh -huh. it's not me like tricking you, it's an actual manifestation. It plays to your, your implicit trust or distrust of, of some kind of technology and whether, yeah. uh, I, can't, I think you can ascribe it to the Marx Brothers, like who are you going to believe, me or your own, is it you, or, no, me or my own, your own lying eyes, whatever that expression is. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting because also in the, in the movie The Changeling where they consult a spirit medium and then they record it and then George C. Scott listens back to the tape. So yeah, it's just part and parcel, I guess, that kind of documenting of the otherworldly mm -hmm. realm. Yeah. And it's interesting because uh, both myself and my co-author, our least favorite genres are supernatural and found footage. So we definitely wanted to talk to someone like yourself who really likes those and we're, we'd like to uh, sort of reimagine and uh, sort of appreciate these more, more so through your insights. Yeah, I mean, this is not to say that these films are good, <laughs> necessarily. It's just that it's interesting that what, what they can... And we can all, all, obviously, as you know, we can learn from bad films, right? Although I do happen to like paranormal activity. I'm going to throw that out there. Hmm. But, I mean, some of these other films that you mentioned, surely they're probably terrible in many ways. But they're trafficking the same kind of ideas of a desire to technologically capture and perhaps then master the supernatural or the unknown. But I think what, I, what I'm also interested in is this sort of what I see as an implicit, inherent incompatibility between mechanical vision and that which is, is metaphysical. Because I mean, if something is the product of the physical natural sciences, how can you then claim to capture something that belies all that we know about the physical world? And again, I find the response quite interesting about people who are spirituals today and just believers in general, that there's a sense of which, well, there is an alternate plane that doesn't defy, it defies perhaps what we currently know about the world, but what we currently know about the world is then not accurate because we have all these experiences. So in that sense, it wouldn't even be super natural. It would be quite natural. It's just, it's like another wavelength. Uh, where our vision only sees a, a spectrum of the electromagnetic field, right? We can devise devices that can access the other, the other spectrums. Yeah, well, as other so, animals do with different uh, yeah. uh, wavelengths on the spectrum. Yeah. I guess cats can see a lower, I think, frequency wavelength, and they can see shadows move and all mm -hmm. this nifty stuff. So yeah, it's a, which is really cool. And so again, there's a there's truth to that, right? Like our bodily vision is deficient in that way. Um, and you see this all the time in paranormal investigation and in paranormal activity where you have night vision or you have thermal imaging cameras or you know, some sort of technological way to some access, interface to access. The, yeah. invi the, the invisible for the human being. So in, in previous films, that would not be the case then. In previous sort of straight ahead ghost films, they would not, or maybe they would cap, try and capture it with recording equipment, but not to the same extent, like oh, the plethora of, of means of capturing that we have that we have now. Yeah, I think now there's there's you know there's many different instruments one can use, and often many instruments are used within a single kind of context, such that oh we've got photographic film, we've got digital cameras, we've got thermal imaging, we've got sound, and so the idea is that through all of these even if they're all fragmentary <laughs> and none of them yields particular evidence in themselves, by putting them together, we can get a kind of clear composite. Picture. Yeah. Um, and, you know, paranormal activity is quite interesting because it's a one camera, right? Um, 
that is handheld in the daytime scenes and then static in the, in the nighttime scenes. And the suggestion is that it just so happens to pick up various phenomena. And I think there is something about like surveillance and encouraging surveillance and the, again, the kind of monitoring of ourselves and each other that's going on in these films that I find quite interesting and problematic and that's kind of disturbing. Um, and I, I've read pieces where they talk about is this sort of normalizing and encouraging a kind of surveillance? Well, that, that's interesting. So to what extent do, do horror films really reflect cultural anxieties? Because it's not like a surveillance state is anything new. I mean, mm -hmm. you can go back to Watergate and mm -hmm. it can just be ratcheted up through, I guess, well, the uh, IRS scandal in the States or how people are being monitored. Uh, well, yeah, Homeland Security, any kind of thing. So is, is, is that a little bit overstated or are we entering like a fertile period uh, in which this has become more of an anxiety? Because I always thought, yeah, it's a little bit odd. It's, it's easy to delineate or easy to sort of accept that, I guess, nuclear, uh, I guess, scares sort of spurred the uh, atomic creature type movie and the monster yeah. movies in the 50s and the Red Scare and that yeah. kind of thing. But it's harder to sort of to... I guess associate that with now, or I could be wrong, I'm not sure. I don't know. I think I, I might want to tie that back to the anxiety around the digital in general, of like not being able to trust, to trust digital technologies wholesale, because if everything requires this sort of intermediary step of like satellite transmission or what have you, that, that sort of conjures the specter of militarization and yeah. like government involvement and, and interception right it's like because things can travel as digital bits they lose their sort of physicality then they can be intercepted more easily hmm. i mean i think that question has to be dealt with on a case-by-case -case basis i'm not suggesting all films are about or secretly this like anxiety around uh government surveillance it's just interesting that i think culturally surveillance is now it, it is quite normalized like we are we should expect to be on film or on camera yeah for this very like conversation any, i would guess yeah we're probably on a bunch of cameras right now and we accept that that's not scandalous at all right anymore yeah and even just walking down the street everyone's got again everyone has their phone so there's it's no longer abnormal that we are surveilled 24 7 right i don't know that it was ever um well again we'd have to look at the kind of history of, of surveillance in this sense but i would go back to to that sort of anxiety um in terms of the question of surveillance i think but, but, but also things like again home security systems and the sort of this need to protect the house, right? And again, haunted house films are centuries old. Well, haunted house stories were centuries old, of course, and probably one of the oldest horror stories is the haunted house or the haunted domicile. Well, yeah, well, I guess the, inter the, uh, the scares there would be internalized versus the home invasion, but still uh, transgressing some sort of boundary where you feel most safe. I was thinking mm -hmm. maybe the, the Purge with mm. uh, Ethan Hawke. And, well, any of the home invasion movies, uh, you can, I mean, Last House on the Left, whatever, yeah. there's Siege, there's a Canadian movie yeah. where people are under assault and they have to defend the homestead against yeah. an external force versus an internal. Yeah. And, uh, 
as, as a, someone who's more of a materialist, like I'm more, I'm uh, more into realism. But that, mm -hmm. the, the the breaching of the your private space, I always found terrifying, and more so than the ghost stuff. But yeah, but the ghost stuff is doing the same thing. It's like your property, right? Your sort of the space that you own, um, and thus your kind of personal, yeah, safety. Uh, what's the other word I'm looking for? It's like you've got this sense of closeness to the space that you own, right? Which then the ghost invades. It's like all of these ghost films and, well, and demon films are about invasion in a certain sense. And, and they both, I guess, have in common that once you leave your house, you've generally escaped. Yeah, although now that's changing, interestingly, because I feel like a lot of horror films have sort of caught up to that cliche. Like in, in Insidious, they move out quite early. Um, and then it's like, oh, the haunting is attached to your kid, not to the house. But I think what, what, what haunted films do for us as well is remind us that, hey, this land actually isn't yours, right? It's, it's all about what you, you might have your name on the lease, you might have um, bought the house or what have you, but I mean, it really disrupts property in that sense. And it begs the question of who's the owner of land. I mean, that's again, that's what Poltergeist is all about, right? These housing developments go up, but it's actually, uh, well, it was Native American land, right? Yes, indeed. Um, and that's what's coming to get you. So, I mean, and Amityville Horror is quite similar. So the idea there is that you are not the true owner of your house, and you are, in fact, the aggressor <laughs> in that sense, or colonialism more generally. And that's not really the case with paranormal activity. Like, that's not the, the premise of that series uh, but again they do have this similar sense of we need to protect our suburban upper middle class life that is being invaded and actively threatened and it's weird about that film how they are so independently wealthy hmm. like there is no way that they can afford this place she's a teacher and he's like he's like a video editor or something there's no way you can afford that house anyway <laughs> that's my hmm. other pet peeve about looking at houses in films it's it's thinking about what can these characters actually afford maybe yeah. condo development is the next phase of uh, of horror maybe yeah i mean again that's poltergeist too right whether <laughs> i think they're in a big condo sort of tower thing but yeah haunted house films in generally um are all about this kind of upsetting of not only reality <laughs> questions our understanding of reality but also of ownership um, and property and I think we could, I've thought about this before, about tying haunted house films, recent ones, to the economic crisis in the States and the, that housing bubble where it's like, oh, this actually isn't yours and people are evicted and whatnot. Um, and there is an article in, there's a book edited by Murray Leader called Cinematic Ghosts. And there's an article in there about like the economics of haunted houses. Oh, he's from the University of Calgary, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Okay. Yeah. So there's a, an article, I forget who wrote that chapter, but it's sort of about this idea of the economics of the haunted house, right? And you can imagine how one could understand their house to be part of this like spectral phantom thing of does the bank own my house or is it going to be traded in this like instant? I mean, that's a simplistic view, obviously, but. But the sense of that it's not truly mine, right? Because it's it's beholden to all of these invisible forces.
Ooh, like I'm, I'm down with that. I think that's a really no, that's really compelling. Yeah, I mean the market forces that drove the, uh, the subprime mortgage crisis. A bunch of people couldn't afford their homes. Government programs to say here, let's lower the yeah whatever the down payment you got to make, and then people default when the interest rates go up. And mm -hmm. yeah, your space is not your own. Uh, yeah, the underpinning of that. And I think there's so many different analogies and metaphors we could use for the spectral, which is very much something that's invisible yet yet present. It's like it's an absent presence. That's yeah, the invisible hand like a, of Adam Smith's market. Yeah, right? the forces at work. Yeah, and Marx used metaphors of haunting all the time, specters and Marx. Huh. Um, that's Derrida describing um, Marx's ideas. But I mean, he talks about the commodity as being this sort of like ghost-like, mystical thing. Yeah, because it's both material, materially here, yet totally kind of absent in the ether. So. Well, we'll see how much longer physical cash that we paid for our coffees with is, is yeah. going to be here. And, and I didn't pay. Oh, no, I did. But I, <laughs> I usually use like the tap kind of system, right? So it's I'm like, archaic and I pay with the loose coins that I can find. That's but, good. That's good. So I, th I think you spoke to it already, but what would your favorite genre be? Would it be this, uh, this uh, supernatural uh, chronicling of, of spectral creatures with different technology or do you have other favorites like you know it's fair to say like slasher movies are not in you know in your bailiwick or not so much in your i enjoy them i think they're interesting for their own reasons um i mean i don't know that i have a favorite genre i think i'm interested in in spectrality specifically from a kind of film theory perspective again if the if the photograph photographic image has historically been tied to things like death and the ghostly because again there's an absent presence of like this is capturing a moment in time that is done and over and yet is materially present in this form it's like there's always a ghostly sense of the cinematic image so i'm interested so i'm interested in that on the theory side but i enjoy a good slasher film um i mean i enjoy it sounds i enjoy all kinds of genres if the film itself is good like, I don't know that I have a favorite. I think I'm more drawn to horror films. And I'm more drawn to, to films that are actually disturbing because I think it's interesting to think about why am I disturbed. And that gets back to the beginning when we're talking about The Exorcist and sort of what got me into thinking more critically about horror films. It's, it's a sort of like introspective moment of, ah, that got me, why? Like, what is it about this thing that gets me? And found footage sort of started that way too, where that form back when it was new and fresh disturbed me more than like Halloween H2O. And the question is why? Is it because it seems more realistic and unbelievable? Or is it because it uses familiar technologies in really sort of disturbing ways? Is it, it taps into this sort of perhaps unconscious anxiety about our total allegiance to technologies that we can never separate from like so i think the questions that it makes one ask are more interesting than say slasher films at this moment hmm. who is to say that there won't be a really interesting revival of the, of the slasher film because they really don't have much subtext for the most part right a slasher film in the way that even the exorcist uh has let's say, a questioning of an authority figure and that is, is in con uh, something that it shares with animal attack movies where there's frequently like a some kind of uh, figure where it's a whether it's a sheriff or like a biologist sounding mm -hmm. the alarm and then we don't heed their warnings. So there's yeah. always a warning of like how or yeah, some 
subtext about how much we trust uh, bureaucrats. Yeah. So, but in the slasher film, we really don't because there's no cops investigating them mm -hmm. until uh, most of them at the end. There's maybe like you might see yellow police tape or some sort of someone looking at some bodies and just sort of wondering what happened. But there's never any involvement, and there's never any, generally speaking, not much of a warning. Uh, Halloween, yeah. I think, does have one, but for the most part, the, the ones, the follow-ups really don't. Yeah. But there you can be like, this is about the failure of institutions, say. I feel like there, you can always look for issues of you know, gender, race, class, um, in any film that you look at. Because whether intended or not, these things are present if there's people yeah. <laughs> in films, right? So we can always look at, okay, how is gender represented, which is typically how slasher films are analyzed and critiqued. But you can also look at how is race represented, what, how, is, how are economic classes sort of dealt with. We can always look in any film for these things. So I think there's always going to be more interesting arguments and more interesting analyses over and above just like a maniac out on the street. But principally in terms of slasher films with the absence of police um, and just like law enforcement itself, these films are also, you know, they're geared toward teen audiences and they're for, they're about and for teenagers. So, I mean, the lack of adults around makes sense, but they're, but again, it could be read as a kind of failure of institutions or the state, if you want. Huh. Yeah, I never yeah. thought about, yeah, I mean, failure of camp counselors to look after, you know, well, yeah, but they're hardly authority figures or barely, they're barely, they're proto, they're well, quasi-adults, I guess, on the, on the cusp of adulthood, yeah. they're, they're really, that doesn't even fall into that category. Yeah, and again, with, with that specific example, we've got negligent camp counselors and a, and a trauma that returns to wreak revenge off of this new, like, generation. Um, and there's, 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 you know, sometimes, like, a greedy industrialist in there somewhere. If we're going to keep this camp open, you know, like, why do they keep that thing open? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Uh, or the economic downturn uh, uh, causing problems for the uh, slaughter families, uh, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, uh, meat processing business in, yeah. in, in Texas. Yeah, and again, if you look at cannibalism as the... Or Sawyer food. family, or is it Slaughter? Sawyer. I don't even remember their names. Yeah, yeah. Slaughter is very apropos, yeah. obviously. But, like, if, if cannibalism is the kind of, like, logical extreme of capitalism, which is about this sort of uncontrolled, unsustainable consumption. It's like, you can read that as a metaphor for capitalism itself. Um, and yeah, in that film, they talk about there's, there's the sort of like oil crisis and they're, they're, there's even that weird moment when he's like, did you turn the light off? Like in the house or something. So this, there's this unacknowledged concern about electricity and, and saving and what have you. Um, but that's, been talked about in terms of zombie films as well as being a sort of like metaphor for the consumer, a brainless, a brainless consuming agent. So I, I mean, I'm a believer in monsters can be metaphors or analogies for all sorts of different things, um, many of which are persuasive. But I think, yeah, the question that you're asking is how are technologies like the contemporary monster in this moment, right? Um, yeah, I think there is a sort of skepticism about their tie to 
um, reality to documentary evidence to factual information. I think there's a sense of can we trust like the internet to tell us the truth or can we trust the news to give us an accurate representation of what's happening in the world and we we see this all the time in our current moment. Right? Fake news, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's a sense of, like is is that is that image that I'm seeing or that video that I'm seeing contextualized properly? How do I verify that this is accurate if all of my consumption is mediated? Right, necessarily. I mean as North Americans, all of our consumption about the world is not lived experience. Um, most of us probably don't know anyone that's like in a war zone, hopefully. But then we have we, we can't but trust institutions and the media, which has been branded like this evil figure, mm. <laughs> which again is not new. The media no, has no. been castigated forever. Um, but I think that that's an interesting point to look more into. Do these films have a sense of? Well, they certainly have a sense of the person on the other line or the person at the other end of this connection is not who you think it is and is out to harm you and trick you and deceive you and what have you. I think that's certainly there. But then what is behind that? You know, what is driving that sort of anxiety? Hmm. Yeah. Well, given we, we well, first we both come from uh, Catholic families, so... Uh, we can mention The Exorcist there. It's mm-hmm. one of the few films, I guess, that along with The Silence of the Lambs that got any sort of, garnered any sort of attention from establishment bodies that you know, yeah. bestow accolades, uh, specifically the Oscars. So what is it yeah. about horror films that, that they've been given short shrift? And what will it take to change it? I know Get, I haven't seen Get Out yet. Me neither, but that, I'm looking forward to seeing that. Um, I think it's because they're not taken seriously. They're they're understood to be sort of gratuitous. They're well, understood. I would, to I would be... say comedies are as well. Like uh, yeah. in a way that uh, something subversive like Borat maybe should have been nominated for an Oscar. But it really, unless it's Woody Allen related or something, they really don't like. It has to have another genre with it, like a comedy drama. It can't yeah. be like Bridesmaids or something or straight up. It will never be nominated a straight up comedy. So yeah, yeah, and I think like you know. These body genres, right, are these so-called low genres that are about sort of like, they're not mindful, they're not perceived to be intelligent, whereas The Sons of the Lambs and The Exorcist are sort of perceived to be intelligent films that are about more than what they are about. It's like The Exorcist can't be about an actual demon possessing you, it's got to be about something larger, which is sort of like faith, right, and the search for faith, which, you know the Academy would love <laughs> as a kind of humanist exploration of faith. Well, it was, if I'm not mistaken, it was set in Washington, D.C., or was it yeah. not? Yeah, yeah, so you could always read George in. Georgetown University. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Which is a Catholic institution. Of course, yeah. Um, yeah, so I think there's a sense in which this, this is unserious. It's about satisfying a baser you know, need or function, which is just laughter for laughter's sake, or shock for shock's sake, or what have you. It doesn't um, uplift the human condition, even if something doesn't have subtext, like a 12 years a slave, it makes everyone feel good, and it's a didactic piece of, like it's broccoli that you should watch to make you connect to something, but it, has, it, doesn't have, it doesn't operate at that level whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna put words in you know, these people's mouths or anything, but I think historically, horror films have been sort of 
dismissed as being non-serious and non-intellectual and non-artistic. That's the other thing. It's like they're schlocky. Well, again, the argument would go they're schlocky. They're they're not interested in creating cinematic art. They're not interested in like experimenting with the form. Which again, for anyone who's seen horror films, that's not true. So it's 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 both ignorance in that sense that you're just not seeing the films, um, as well as this this stereotypical view of the films as being non-artistic, non-intelligent, and therefore not worthy of accolades. Yeah. And, and not explicitly like a social problem film, right? Or not explicitly about something that is perceived to be of substance. So again, it'll be interesting to see what happens with Get Out, a film that is completely politically relevant, sort of, I mean, heard, right? and I expect to be, but it's also what I've read is unabashedly a horror film. So it'll be interesting to see how that gets, how that gets treated uh, during award season. Interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks for chatting with me. And uh, where can we uh, go to find your work? Uh, where can you go? I've only been published in a couple of things, like a graduate student journal, um, Film International, and this upcoming volume on space horror. But the first two are not about horror film at all. They're more about like a documentary and um, photography and film specific. Again, my sort of more medium specific interests that okay. I'm aligning with horror film now. But hopefully in the near future, as I start writing chapters, I'm starting already, some of that stuff will come out on found footage in particular. Oh, fantastic. Or horror films in particular. Yeah. And we'll keep our listeners abreast of that. Cool. That'd be great. All right. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.